Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Lord's Day. And while it is cold outside, and while weather supposedly is headed our way, we know that this is the Lord's Day. It's not a day for fear, and it's not a day for us to stay away, but You have provided for us so graciously the ability to come together, 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 and to worship You. And so we thank You for this brief moment for us to study the Heidelberg Catechism and the truths that it holds forth and has held forth for hundreds of years. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us and that while the, or as the Catechism is faithful to Your Word, so also You will direct us to Your Word that we may know You and glorify You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I read to you last week uh, the first question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, I have on the table for you uh, a handout that contains uh, a series of questions related to this first question and answer that I just want us to walk through, and, I, and hopefully uh, these questions will uh, stimulate discussion. Um, I will tell you the scripture references that are included with each of these questions do answer the questions that are asked. So while I didn't have enough real estate on one piece of paper uh, to be able to provide all of those printed out for you, uh, you'll want to uh, take note of those and any questions, uh, have your Bibles handy and uh, be able to look up those, those Scripture references. But I want to start again by asking the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism and then reading its answer, and then we'll, we'll dig in. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Now, the way that I have this broken out, and you'll see this broken out in different publications, but I have this broken out on your handout into three separate paragraphs. Um, that's how it is often printed, at least in modern publications. And I think that it's helpful to break it out like that because really the catechism is dealing with a three-part answer to this original question. Um, and so, uh, in thinking through this and in reading the answer that is answered to this question, what is your only comfort in life and death? I want to begin with this basic question. What is the primary assumption? What is the primary assumption of this answer? There, there's not even a close second What's the primary assumption of this answer? That you're a Christian. That's it. And what is fascinating about the Heidelberg Catechism is 
it starts at the very beginning with that presumption. Um, is, is the gospel given to us in this answer? Absolutely. But it is structured in a way that it is responding and teaching for the edification of the saints. Could someone study the Heidelberg Catechism and come to faith in Christ? Certainly, uh, I think that's the case. But that wasn't the purpose of this. The purpose of the Heidelberg Catechism was to teach and train for the purpose of edifying the saints. And and so you'll see this right from the get-go. The other thing, and I think I mentioned this last week, but if I didn't, I should have, you'll also notice that it is written in first person. And so it's, it's very personable, which is different if you if you're <clears throat> have memorized or memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, it's not. And, and so the, the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism um, is, is, well, it's a bit wordy at times because it's trying to state it in a way that is conveying it in a general sense. But in this case, it is very personal. Why am I, or rather, why is your only comfort? Answer, I, that I am not my own. And so, so there's purpose in that. But the primary assumption of the answer is, well, this is for believers. And it's for believers only. An unbeliever cannot answer this question this way. But I want to break this down. I want to, I want to dig down into this because this is rich with scriptural support for every clause, and I'm going to stand by that statement, for every clause of this first answer. And I want to begin with this. Why am I not my own? If I'm to, to say, if someone says, hey, John, here you're a Christian, and I say, yes, I am, and, and they say, well, could you, how would you describe that? And I might say, well... Let me just start by saying, I'm not my own. Uh, well, first of all, that's, that's quite contrary uh, to what we hear today, right? Uh, in fact, a consistent reinforcement is, what are you doing for you? What, what, what are you doing for, to make you better? Are you focusing? Are you spending enough time on you? I heard that, that recently. You know, are you spending enough time focusing on you? And I thought... You have no idea. That's my problem. <laughs> Me is the problem, right? <laughs> and so, uh, so the answer starts by saying, I am not my own, and why is that? Why, can it, why does a Christian answer in such a way to say, I am not my own? Blood bought, Right? By the blood of Jesus Christ, I have been bought, I have been purchased, I have been redeemed. All of those words uh, all basically convey the same idea. Um, this is the way, and this is in your, uh, your handout scripture reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. And then he says, and I quote, You are not your own. Answer to why? You were bought, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
And, and the main point in answering this question is, as, as Susan rightly said, is I can say I'm not my own because I have been bought. I have been bought with a precious price, that precious price being the blood of Christ. And so the second question then leads from that, to whom do I belong? That's the first one, that's the easy Sunday school answer. To whom do I belong? And why in both life and death? To whom do I belong? That's right. To, the, the answer is at the end of, of the statement, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. So I, I belong to my Lord who has redeemed me. But the second question I have, it says, in both life and death. Why is the catechism making this distinction, and why is it important? So, the Christian life is lived in life and in death, right? I mean, again, we, we, can, we can quote John 3.16 and we can put an emphasis upon eternal, put an emphasis on everlasting life, and rightly so. So in, in death I am His. But the other side of that is, is, is in this life, when I come to faith in Christ, it's not a delay. I don't become bought later. In addition to that, so also... I am bought, I am Christ's in death as well, which should also give us confidence, which is why as a Christian we don't fear death. We belong to Christ and we are His completely in this life. Here's the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 14. And listen, incidentally, in each of these scriptures that I read to you, just be listening for echoes uh, in the catechism. You're going you're to find just how much the, the writer is paraphrasing Scripture. Paul writes, this is 14, 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And so it is a theologically precise statement to say that I am my Lord's in life and in death. Third question. Why may I call my Savior faithful? Note that. I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, why didn't the catechism just simply say, to my Savior, Jesus Christ? Why insert the word faithful? And why is the word faithful important? All right. Elaborate on that for me. Tell, tell me about, about how he was and how he is faithful. Mm-hmm. 
That faith. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's part of what we talk about when we talk about the, the doctrine of the perseverance or preservation of the saints, that, that we, are, we are kept. And I'll talk a little bit about that today in my sermon on Jude, um, but that, that Christ keeps us. But so also in His faithfulness, and I, and I might add to uh, what Eric said is exactly right, we might add to that. So also He is faithful to intercede. In fact, Scripture says that He continually intercedes. There's not a moment where he goes, coffee break, time to stop intercession for just a minute, you know. Oh my gosh, if only he'd been interceding for me in that moment, you know. No, that's ridiculous. He is continually interceding for us. So also, we see that he was faithful in his life. Uh, we talked about uh, last week uh, a little bit and the week before, I think it was, in, the, uh, in our church service about the passive obedience of Christ, but so also the active obedience of Christ. He was faithful in His life. So also faithful unto the cross, Philippians chapter 2, right? And so He endured both uh, the, I think our, our Westminster Catechism says um, that he un, undergoing uh, the miseries of this life, uh, the wrath of God, and uh, the cursed death of the cross. And all of this he was faithful in, in his keeping uh, the law and in his living unto God always, but he continues to be. Even in our death, he, or even, even after His death and after His resurrection and after His ascension, He continues our faithful Savior. Um, or to put it simply, the Apostle Paul says, You are Christ. Christ is God, talking about the unity of the Godhead. And then Paul writing to Titus, "...who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." And so because of His faithfulness, so He continues to be faithful, so also then uh, we are saved. How and with... What, how and with what did my Savior fully pay for all my sins? How and with what did my Savior fully pay for my sins? And Susan answered this for us a minute ago, didn't she, when she said, I'm blood-bought, right? Uh, Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed, there's another word, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so rightly do we say we are blood bought by Christ only by His precious blood, as Peter puts it. Or in 1 John, John says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And then, of course, John goes on to say uh, that if we say that we don't have sin, we're a liar. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he goes on in the second chapter of 1 John to say that Christ is our propitiation, um, which is a, a word that means the atoning sacrifice. 
His blood shed as the atoning sacrifice. For without the shedding of blood, the writer of Hebrews says, there is no remission. There is no atonement for our sin. And so Christ satisfied that in the shedding of His blood. So a practical question then, moving our way further through this first catechism answer, from what have I been set free? Look at, look at the, the answer. It says, He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free. From what have I been set free? So, one is, I have been set free from my slavery to sin. But so also, look at the catechism answer. What else have I been set free from? Yeah, the tyranny of the devil. Isn't that a fascinating insertion? I've, I've truly been saved from sin, but in defining that, the, the, the author of the catechism says, is, well, I have been freed from the tyranny of the devil. What does the word tyranny mean? Ruling over? Like a tyrant, right? Would be another word. That's an excellent word. What else? Tyranny. Like a taskmaster. Almost the idea of, of, a, of abusive slave labor. Uh, all of these could be, could be synonyms with that. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practice, practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And, and again, just contextually, I know that last verse gets quoted a lot, um, even in secular culture. But contextually, what was Jesus saying? If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Contextually, what was he talking about? And he wasn't talking about... Uh, politics or rights or movements or anything like that, something far more important than any of those things. Captivity to sin. That's it. Contextually, that's all Jesus is talking about there is, is sin. And so if the, sin, if the Son sets you free from sin, you will be set free indeed. The writer of Hebrews then goes on and says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver of all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." And so the idea that, that the writer of Hebrews is talking about there, and it's why oftentimes you'll, you'll hear me or you'll hear others uh, group together sin and death, both of these under the influence of the devil, the tyranny of the devil, we were, apart from Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, we were under His rule and His reign, and so also subject to the tyranny of sin and our flesh giving rampant uh, permission to reign over us. And so also, in the writer of Hebrews says, is that Christ destroyed the one, referring to the devil's power 
over us by virtue of that sin and then literally says what we claim as Christians and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, the idea of at the essence of that fear of death reigning and affecting how someone lives. Christians do not fear death because we have been delivered by Christ. And then finally in 1 John, and you'll see the scripture reference there is uh, the bulk of the third chapter. But the main thing that I want to draw your attention uh, to there is uh, John says, and I'm not going to quote all 11 verses, but John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And then he goes on and says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen seen him or known him, little children, let no one deceive you. And what John talks about in that third chapter of 1 John is what we have talked about often is that in the Christian life, it is not that Christians do not sin, but it's that the Holy Spirit shows us our sin. And while we may be tempted to sin, we hate it. And so that's why you've, you've heard me say in talking about your, your children, you know, some will say, you know, well, you know, how, how do I know when, when my child has, has truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, one of the ways is, is, is there a visible evidence of the Holy Spirit leading that child to, in fact, be convicted of their sin, apart from mom and dad? I've used the example before of the, of the cookie jar, right? So if, if you say to your child, John, do not get a cookie out of that cookie jar. I'm going to the grocery store. I'll be back in 20 minutes. One hour later, John says, Mom ain't home, and reaches in and gets the cookie out of the cookie jar and says, Aha! Success! And then, oh no, oh no, I feel so ashamed and I am overcome the guilt of the cookie. And we laugh, but it's a perfect example of how the Holy Spirit works in the simple areas. It's like a friend of mine told me before is that the first sign that they saw was when they told their daughter to take a bath. You, you take a bath, we're going to have dinner, and we're going to get ready, and as she comes to the dinner table, and both parents know she didn't take a bath. And then later, she is overcome by guilt. She has disobeyed her parents, and she has to confess to them, I didn't take a bath, right? We know you didn't take a bath, but way more important than a bath is that the evidence, the Holy Spirit is convicting that child. So it is within the Christian. We need to understand that non-Christians are not convicted the way that we are of sin. It is distinctly different. It doesn't mean that we can't make someone feel ashamed. It doesn't mean that we can't make someone feel guilty. It doesn't mean that God's Ten Commandments, it doesn't mean that God's moral law doesn't affect a culture at large. In fact, it can, but it affects it differently than the believer. We who are convicted by the Holy Spirit so also desire not to keep sinning. Will we deal with sin the rest of our lives? 
Absolutely. But we desire to mature and to not sin. And so that's the area where we have been set free. We've been set free from the tyranny of the devil. We've been set free from the sin that controls us. We have been set free indeed. And then how does my Savior watch over me? Look at the catechism with me. How does my Savior watch over me? Well, it says that He watches over me in such a way. What, what's that way? Alright, so, so, so one is, is that we see that nothing is going to happen to me outside of God's will, right? It says, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Now you think about that, and you think about all that we encounter in life. And you think about what we teach our children as well. It, it means that, that there is nothing happening within my life that is outside of God's will. God did not take a vacation. He didn't take a break. In fact, He knows even when a hair falls from my head. <clears throat> and so, what, we <clears throat> what my Savior watches over is everything. Everything. As, as insignificant as a hair of my head, and so also as important as my salvation, which we'll come to with the next question. But just a couple of <clears throat> my, a couple of uh, verses to draw to your attention, and uh, one of them Eric uh, referenced earlier in John chapter six. Jesus says, "And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day." For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I raise Him up on the last day. If you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit, if you have put your faith in Christ, that should cease any fear whatsoever of your salvation. Now, I, I know that there are some today that would lead us to fear those things, but if there is true evidence, conviction, profession, so also living out and producing fruit in our lives in great quantity sometimes and sometimes a rough harvest, right? But if there is evidence of God's work in our lives, so also we have the assurance that we are in Christ, and that He has secured us. He's watching over us in all things great and small. Jesus goes on in John chapter 10 to say, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Uh, I'll pause there for just a second. Um, it is a, a fascinating study and I don't have time to go there, but it's a fascinating study, the Greek word that is translated perish. We see it at the end. You see it in the Gospel of John. Um, you see it in uh, John 3.16, should not perish. You see it again here in John chapter 10 as other places. And that idea of, of, of perish uh, is the idea of being in Christ with 
God living a life as God has redeemed us to live with Him forever. And so sometimes people will see that word perish and think of it as non-existence. But that would not be the case. That would be contrary to Scripture because we know that there is eternal torment for those who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then how comprehensive is God's care for me? How comprehensive is God's care for me? And what I mean by that question is is that if in fact He is my Savior, uh, what all does that include? Again, as the Catechism is teaching us here, as Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so also, He said to His disciples, you'll be delivered up, and so forth and so on. But He said, not a hair of your head will perish. Again, we who are in Christ, our salvation is comprehensive. Now, we need to make sure that that does not devolve into some sort of prosperity gospel. Um, That's not saying that we won't encounter troubles. It's not that we won't encounter sickness. It's not that we won't encounter trials and those who seek to persecute us, so forth and so on. No, that's not what Jesus is saying, and that's certainly not what the Catechism is teaching. But what it is describing is a kind of salvation that is cradle to grave. It is that we are kept even throughout this entire life and then even into eternity. There is no point in our lives, in other words, where, we, where God is not caring for us, and this includes our salvation. And again, I think it was, I think JD quoted it just a minute ago, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. God, in His sovereign care of us, which is mysterious, which we cannot understand, and that we cannot fathom that something bad that happens in our life that somehow God could use and turn, and that would be used for our good and His glory. But that is exactly what Scripture teaches us, that all of our life, every bit of it, is under God's comprehensive care. And so, and I think this is my last question, it is. No, it's not. Almost my last one. Why then am I assured of eternal life? And this would be a good, because I know we live in a part of the country where um, there are denominations that are popular that teach the opposite, that, that you can lose your salvation. And, uh, you know, a, a bad day in the life and times of John uh, means no eternal life with Christ, so forth and so on. Uh, but why am I assured of eternal life? Well, note the last paragraph of this answer. Because I belong to Him. So if, if, if I belong to Him, is there anything that I could do to no longer belong to Him? Well, what does belonging mean? 
What does it mean that I, I belong to Christ if for somehow, if for some reason, that I would no longer belong to Him? This is the way Paul puts it in uh, Romans chapter 8. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, whom, cry, whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the assurances of our salvation is the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put His seal on us and given His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Holy Spirit's presence is a guarantee that we are in Christ and it is a guarantee of our eternal life and it's also, Scripture says, a guarantee of our inheritance in the heavenly kingdom. And then Paul goes on to say, He who has prepared us for this very thing, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with it. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? And we acquire possession of it. And so one of the areas that I am assured of eternal life is the presence of Christ's Spirit in me. And then finally, how does the fact that I belong to Christ, am indwelled by His Spirit, and assured of eternal life, make me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him? This is really important, because what the writer of this catechism did, in addition to summing up just a brilliant statement of the gospel, he is now answering that question, that Paul asks in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, right? What shall we say then? So, the, so may we continue to sin that grace may abound? Paul says, good night, that's ridiculous. Actually, he says, by no means, I think is how it's translated. But the idea is that's silly. That's the question I'm asking here. How does the fact that I belong to Christ, how does the fact that I am indwelled by His Spirit, How does the fact that I am assured of eternal life make me, quote, wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him? How do those three things... You've got the question on your handout, and that's my question for you. How do those three things, and feel free to draw from each one of them individually if you want to, but how do those three things make me wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for Him? Well, I'll start with the first one, and you can work on the second one, so while you're thinking. So think with me. If I know that I have been redeemed, that I have been ransomed, that I have been bought by the precious blood of Christ, of which there is nothing comparable in value in this world too, if I have been purchased by His blood and therefore belong to Him, then just the idea that He has redeemed me helps in motivating me to live for Him. Because sin 
is an affront to God, but it is also an affront to what Christ has done for us in dying for us and shedding His blood. And so there is a sense of gratitude for which I wholeheartedly live for the Lord because He has redeemed me. And He has done it at great cost to Himself. Secondly, how does the indwelling of His Spirit make me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Exactly, yeah. We're a new creation. As J.D. said, the, the, the old things, that old man, how the old man lived, what the old man thought, what the old man did has passed away. Behold, new things have, have come. Does that mean we're perfect? No, but it does mean that we have indeed been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have metamorphosized, right? And made into a new creation in Christ. And His Holy Spirit is the one who has done this. But so also, it's not a one and done experience. The Holy Spirit does not come, on, come, come upon us or into us, transform us, and then say, Well, my work is done here. See you in heaven. No, the Holy Spirit indwells us and leads us to walk daily by daily dependent upon Him. It is by His Word and Spirit that we live and abide. And so there is the sense of the gratitude and looking back to what Christ has done for us. There is the sense of the Holy Spirit's presence in His leading of us. And then finally, how does the assurance of eternal life make me wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for Him? Much better. That's right. Yeah, yeah. To live as Christ, to die as gain. I, I am looking forward that uh, Paul also uses the, the, the imagery of Abraham and the nomadic life. And we see that also in Jeremiah talking uh, to the Israelites when they were in uh, Babylon. And there, there is a sense in which if we get too attached to this world if we think this is all there is, if we begin to become so immersed in all of the things of this world that we lose sight of the fact that this is not our home and to be with Christ in heaven is better than this life. And so I am, to a certain extent, living a nomadic existence as traveling through. Or Scripture uses another term as a sojourner. I'm sojourning here, and the idea of this and the eternal life that is to come so also motivates me to live for Christ. If I think that this is all there is, and this is all that is most important in life, and my life begins to get sucked down and rooted in all the things that unbelievers work with, which by the way, it's exactly what Jesus said is a problem. Hey, it's a problem in your practical life if you start thinking about life like an unbeliever does. <clears throat> Jesus said, that's the warning sign right there. Instead, my life is motivated. I live my life motivated on what Christ has done for me, what He is doing for me, and what He has prepared for me, which is exactly how this catechism ends. And by faith alone. By faith alone, that's right. Living, living by faith. 
I want to close by simply reading and answering uh, the last, the second question, because the second question is going to tie into the first one, and you'll see it's just a helpful summary answer. What must I know? And and let me say this: that word "know" there is a saving knowledge. So we're not talking about academic knowledge. You might say faith or or belief, but it's a saving knowledge. What must I know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. And so we, we see there in conclusion, we see the, the understanding, a right knowledge of my sin and how I fall short of, short of God's glory. We see there that in Christ that I am set free, I have been delivered from sin and misery, and so also that my life is to be a life of gratitude for what God has done for me in Christ. Alright, we're going to move from that second question, launching into Lord's Day 2, which will begin with the third question next week. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You for the truth that this historic catechism delivers to us, a truth of Your gospel, and how the gospel that saves us so also is the gospel that sanctifies us. And so we pray that by Your Holy Spirit that You would continue to build us and mature us and grow us in Christ. And we pray that as You seek to do that through Your means of grace, You would prepare our hearts and minds this morning to worship with our fellow believers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.